Welcome to By the Glass, a podcast dedicated to boozy beverages and the people who make and drink them. I'm your host, Chris Paldoyan. BTG gang, we are 51 weeks into this podcast, and I just want to say what a wild ride it's been. I haven't quite figured out what we're going to do for the potiversary on April 15th, but hopefully something fun. Maybe get a cookie cake, open a bottle of champagne, it'll be a goddamn motion picture, it'll be fun, whatever we end up doing. Anyways, we'll deal with that next week. Uh, Right now, we're going to go to South Africa and chat with Mick Craven, who makes single vineyard wine in Stellenbosch. Uh, Mick and I met years ago. It was here in Houston at a friend's house, and I remember we mostly drank beer and watched college football, which are two things that under normal circumstances I would never do. Uh, But what I remember about that day is just how chill and down-to-earth and really funny Mick was. So um, it made sense to bring him here onto the podcast so that we could discuss his winemaking career and the intricacies of working with Old Vines and Stellenbosch. Here's Mick. I like that hat. That's your um, distributor in South Africa, right? Uh, Exynemo? Yeah, man. Jeez, you're, you're up to date with everything. How do you know that? Because uh, they have a pretty good podcast, I'm pretty sure, right? Mm, they do, actually. I think I've actually done one. No, I can't remember. Am I popping your podcast cherry right now? Is that is that what's going down? <laughs> I don't know. I think you might be. I can't remember in between all the Zoom calls and Instagram lives. and. I know, so many. Crap. I know, but it's all good. It's fun. For listeners at home, you've got some really beautiful art on the wall behind you. Um, <laughs> I imagine done by your uh, Kinderlochen, right? No, I've been working on my art the last few years. And oh, this is very- this is all you. <laughs> no. The hand turkey. No, this is very much done by our eldest, actually, I believe, who's five, almost five. I don't think our two-year-old is um, quite up to the standard just yet. It's amazing. Not up to the standard yet. For for listeners Mm -hmm. at home, they can't see this art. It's very modern art, very contemporary, very (laughs) abstract. It could be a Jauma wine label. That's where we're going with it. That's where we're going. Yeah. Have you ever thought of doing that? Like having one of your kids design your wine label? Seb, our eldest, actually came home with something from school the other day. That was pretty sick. Yeah. Very, we're considering it maybe for another project. It probably doesn't really fit in with the, the, uh, the Craven theme. Yeah. He's not really up to, up to scratch of doing vineyard sketches yet. <laughs> yeah. Little by little, we'll get there. We'll it's get quite there. cool. It's a good concept. Well, fun, man. Yeah. So you finished Harvest fully at this point, right? Yeah. And it's the end of the day for you. You're, you're drinking, was that a beer I saw? It was a beer and it's not my first. So, um. Oh, I love it. <laughs> That's the cool thing about harvest, you know, you can, you know, you catch yourself drinking a beer at 10 or 11 in the morning and you don't feel that guilty about it. Generally, it's been at the winery since five in the morning. But yes, to answer your question, we are done. We are, we finished picking about three weeks ago or two and a half weeks ago and we've pressed everything off. So everything's pressed really? home in bed, in barrel or tank and yeah. About a week ago, I think we finished. What was the last thing to kind of finish getting fermented? What was the last one? So we, Cabernet is normally our late, uh, sort of last pick for, you know, obvious reasons. Um, but we had about two inches of rain about two weeks ago, which is quite substantial for us during harvest. And we're going to leave the cab probably four or five days longer, but we just thought, you know what, screw it. Let's pick it. Um, just beat the rain pretty much. 
Mm-hmm. And yeah, so that's generally the last thing, but it's it's normally Cab and Syrah, the last two picks. But it's, nice. it's normally around this time, which is good. Can enjoy, um, you know, this time of the year in the, in the Western Cape or Stellenbosch where we live is pretty magical. I literally was about to go to the beach, but that uh, <laughs> that's where the family is now, down at the beach. It's a beautiful time. I'm keeping year. you from the beach this evening. Nah, man, I'm so sorry. That, that's what tomorrow's for. No, I've got, I had stuff to do in the cellar. That's why I had to be a bit late today for this but um yeah no it's it's a great time of the year so it's nice to sort of wrap up harvest and chill out and have a little bit of a break which is cool what's the expression it takes a lot of beer to make good wine it does yeah i drink a shitload of beer during harvest and then generally when i'm on the road overseas but never really throughout the year so i've seen a couple of lone stars make cameo appearances in your Ooh. ig so i enjoy lone star more than any beer actually to be honest really Oh, yeah. We got, so we got to send some to you. I, I can't imagine that it's getting exported all the way to South Africa. No, I mean, I like my beer to taste like nothing. And Lone Star yeah. is like right in that sweet spot. So it's perfect. There yeah. we go. Mm. What is the beer scene like there? I mean, is it is there a lot of stuff getting imported from other markets? The craft beer thing, is that is that what's really kind of going off right now? Um, to be honest, it's kind of very segmented. I mean, it's it's like the US as well. Well, nowhere near as, as diverse, but the vast majority of people just drink beers like this, you know, cheap lagers. Yeah. Um, and I'm in that category. We do have a, a pretty decent craft beer vibe, but um, it feels like, and it's definitely come a long way. I mean, when I moved here 10 years ago, we moved back here, there was probably three or four guys and they were still very much in their garages making beer. Yeah. Um, and some of them have gone on to be really good, but still the vast majority is it's it's hobby-ish. And so it's very hit and miss. I'm quite thankful that I can guarantee there's no craft beer people listening to this. So I can I can talk shit about them a bit. But oh, we've talked it, shit about beer on this podcast before. I've only yeah. ever had one beer guest on, and he works for Guinness, and we spent most of the podcast talking about movies like Midsummer and Hereditary and shit like that. Perfect. So, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, it, it's come a long way, but I think there's still a long way to go. And the market's not really, um, it's not a huge market. So a lot of the guys are actually exporting now, which is quite cool. Oh, yeah. um, but imported, no, we get, the, the most imported beer we get is from Namibia. A lot of our beer comes from Namibia. Really? Yeah. At the end of like a long, hard, hot, filthy day in the winery, there's nothing better than a really cold beer that tastes like nothing. Yeah, you know. that's the only time I crave beer is after like a really long bike ride or going for a long yeah. run. Like yeah. typically when you finish a marathon, there's someone giving out free beer at the end because it's just liquid carbs. It's basically yeah. like liquid bread, right? And that's the time that I crave beer the most. Yeah, so like um, back in my, I guess, more active days, a good friend of mine is a wine, has a wine farm up here, Stellenbosch. Was a, he's a very good runner, marathoner. Every Saturday morning was our long run day. So we'd go out you know, two, three hours just running. That's a long time to be out running, two to three hours. Yeah, I mean, it's. I guess you got to do it if you got to do it. But the goal was it was always an excuse to get home, you know, to be at home at 9 o'clock, there'd be some sport on, 9 in the morning. But as you said, you just crack a beer, it's 9 a.m. You don't care because you've, you've earned it. And then it would lead on to like a bottle of Riesling and then it would lead on to a bottle of Chardonnay. And there we go. So, you know, by midday, you've had a big bacon and eggs, pretty well lit. And you just come home and have a nap. It's a perfect little Saturday morning, I think. So the breakfast beer is a pretty universal thing. Something that's very common here in the U.S. is shower beer. Is Do we have that concept in South Africa in your neck of the woods? I guess people do it, but um, I guess people can't be bothered hanging out in the shower to drink a beer. But it is a good concept. I'd rather just get in the shower, wash myself, than go out and drink 
heaps of deals. You guys also had a bad drought a couple of years ago, right? Exactly. So you don't have yeah. the luxury of just luxuriating with a nice beer in the shower. Exactly. We've learned to have we've learned to have like two minute showers. We're, we're mm. creeping back up to three minutes, but um. If you can smash, you can pound a beer and yeah. clean yourself in three minutes, it's perfect. It's a sense of urgency. That's what you really need there. Exactly. You've been making wine. You moved back in 2011, right? It was 2011 that you moved back to South Africa? Yeah. And yep. you had been in Europe, South America, Sonoma. I mean, you'd been like all over before that, right? Yeah, we we did pretty well. I guess we look back on our time and, you know, you always wanted to do more. But I think we're quite lucky to do what we did. You know, we both left university in 2005. Yeah. And then we just hit the road. We both did harvests. I mean, this is before we met. We only met in 2007. And then... Shout out your wife, Janine, right? Janine, yeah. She's down, you know, having a good time on the beach with the kids. So, yeah, we, we met actually in Sonoma. We met on your side of the pond. There we go. Uh, working, working harvest in a little hotel called the Hotel Flamingo, which is quite seedy and amazing it sounds great it doesn't all the flaming o we like to call it do, do you rent a hotel like that by the hour or is that a full night hotel <laughs> i think it's because it sounds like an hourly i think it's hotel. a minute by the minute uh, <laughs> no we're at some stupid conference or something i can't remember what it was it wasn't yeah. as like dodgy as that you know we both love traveling and we obviously had a job that enabled us to do it, it wasn't really a job it was a myriad of jobs just jumping from hemisphere to hemisphere basically and chasing harvests and traveling in between. And yeah, that's kind of what happened for about five years, six years. Um, that's the real globetrotter right there. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was a lot of fun. And then we would take off, we took off six months and went through South America and did four months through the Middle East and just random bits and pieces of travel. And what were you doing in the Middle East? You definitely weren't making wine there. <laughs> no, we weren't. We just finished harvest in France, 2009. Was that the harvest you worked with, uh, Jordan Salcido? Yeah, she she dropped in for a little cameo, which was fun, up at Dujac, which is a very enjoyable and incredibly enlightening, I think, four weeks or five weeks. Just an amazing family. And yeah, Jeremy's the son kind of in charge. Well, in charge of the wine. Then there's Alex, one of his other brothers. Yeah. And obviously, you know, their father Jacques is a pretty incredible human. But they were just, you know, open, stupid bottles of wine to drink and you know, it's after a while doing the whole um, traveling and, you know, a pump over is a pump over these days and a punch down is a punch down. Yeah. You know, you learn more from drinking, I think. You learn more from drinking wines with these people and asking, like, you know, how did you do this and how did you do that? And so those guys are amazing. They kind of shaped a lot of what we think and do. And Janine was down at Chaputier, actually, in the Rhone. So quite a bigger operation, but also she got to, you know, see some pretty incredible um, fruit and terroirs that came in. And so, yeah, but then, yeah, the Middle East, that was, uh, that was wild. I mean, that was, that was back when Syria, you could actually go to Syria. Like we That's spent two, two or three weeks in Syria and which is one of the greatest countries I've ever visited, you know. What did you like about it? Just the people, you know, like the whole Middle East, you know, we obviously watch the news and see all this bullshit from both wings about who's doing good things, who's doing stupid things, who's being psycho. And a lot of it is just coming from the top, you know, when you're on the ground and you just meet regular people, it's mm -hmm. so hospitable and 
you know, take you into their house for tea and just, just such incredible people and food. And so it's pretty sad to see what's happening in that part of the world these days. And, you know, we're just, we feel very fortunate just to have visited when, you know, things were still standing, basically. Incredible time. Do you keep up with anyone from that time of your life? No, we actually went to visit a mate who makes wine. He's an Aussie who makes wine in the Galan Heights in Israel, which is kind of... Really? Yeah, that was kind of... Yeah, it's interesting because he's obviously very Australian and he's by no means... What do you mean by that when you say he's really Australian? As an Aussie yourself, what what do you mean by that? I don't know. I guess I'm probably pretty Australian. Um, I just think when you put him in in an environment where, you know, they're making kosher wine, it's just he looks even more Australian. You know, he's not even allowed to touch the tanks kind of stuff. Really? That's wild. Yeah. So it it was very interesting to see that you know, wine production in the, in the Middle East. Yeah, the stuff that I see that seems to be most interesting is the white wine. Yeah. I don't know, it's just funny to me because I think to all of the trips that I've taken to like Europe where I'm staying in hostels and I'm traveling around, like when I graduated from college, I backpacked through Italy for like a month. And you always encounter Australians where it's that idea of, well, we're leaving, so we're going to be gone for a while and we're just going to hit up as many places as we can, you know? Yeah. I would always encounter, like those were the most fun people to stay at a hostel with were Aussies because they were just down for whatever. They kept, yeah. It's hard for me to say because I am one of them. But um, I guess when also you travel, you you know, because I did a lot of that sort of backpacking stuff as well in my early 20s, or sort of late teens, early 20s. And you do want to graduate away from Australians, but you also, you know, they're your comfortable sort of allies and you always end up with them. And I think you're right. You know, it's hard for me to sort of see it as a, as a, a native, I guess. So it's kind of, they are very up for everything, but I can see why people think Australians can be a bit brash and over the top, particularly in Europe. We don't like to mess around. We like to have fun. I don't know. I, I'd like to think that Americans fit a similar sort of description, maybe. I think we're sure. probably more obnoxious. People probably see us as worse. I would say so. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think, yeah. but maybe they just thought we were. I don't know. At the end of the day, good people are good people and shit people yeah. are shit people. doesn't matter yeah. where you're from. Words of wisdom. Words of wisdom. Yeah. That'll be the big takeaway from this pod for sure. <laughs> yeah. So you, you came back in 2011 and then you started making wine under the Craven label in 2014, right? Mm. So we did, um, we made a little bit of Pinot in 12, tied like a barrel for fun. Hmm. And then 13, we actually made... Craven Pinot in 2013, but it was the only one we made. And once again, it was like two barrels. But 20, I see 2014 as like the first year. Those previous two vintages of Pinot were just kind of more of an experimental thing? Or... Yeah, I think it was It was definitely experimental. I mean, we, we kind of knew what we were doing. We like to think we knew what we were doing. But I'd like to think if you spend time at Dujac, you have some <laughs> idea of what you're doing. Yeah, right? you would hope so. But I think I see 2014 as like the first year because it became commercial in in a sense. You know, there was some gravitas to it. You know, there was four wines, different vineyards, and it was a bit more serious, I think. So 2013 was kind of the conception (laughs) rather than the actual birth. And you went into it knowing you wanted to do like single vineyard bottlings or was that just gradually that became the ethos of, of the winery? It was always from, I think we made that first wine, the Pinot, and we always, you know, the, the whole thing for us was if you're creating a brand or, or doing something that you give a shit about, 
I think you need to have some form of vision and some form of identity more so than anything. So first and foremost, we wanted to be regional. Stellenbosch for us was always going to be it. I mean, Janine is, I'll probably get it wrong, but where she grew up was probably fourth generation on the farm or third generation. Oh, wow. So Stellenbosch is her home and she knows it well and I love it here. So it was just a, that's, that was the first sort of, I guess, building block. And then, um, you know, it was one of those things where like, okay, I've made this single vineyard Pinot. And then we both kind of just realized that the wines that I guess excite us the most, whether they're the best in the world or not, or it's relevant to us, you know, wines that are single vineyard, I guess, you know, you can read on a label. And this is what I love about Californian wine in general, you put vineyard names on bottles. Well, some of the guys do. And it's really cool. You know, I can sit here and read this vineyard name or vineyard designate and can really sort of feel what what's come from that vineyard rather than just Russian River Pinot. It could be a blend from 20 different vineyards. So the fact that we make single vineyard wines isn't necessarily think is the best thing to do or the best wine to make. We just find it the most exciting. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of where it went from. Well, it's funny because you've made wine or worked at wineries in very different places where the government has more or less control, right? Like you go to a place like Burgundy and the Appalachian laws are so specific, yep. whereas then you go to Sonoma, right? And it doesn't matter. You can put the name of the vineyard, plant whatever you want. You can make the wine however the fuck you want. Really doesn't matter. Yeah. Here we're actually, um, in terms of planting stuff and doing all that, we're very open. You can do what you want. You can plant mm-hmm. what you want. Labeling here is actually brutal. We've got a pretty hardcore system and it's actually really good. I, I used to get quite frustrated with it, but I think it's a very, like we get audited heavily after harvest. You have to. I think I remember, yeah, you once told me about an audit or some shit that you got about your Pinot Gris. Oh, that's a different story. Yeah. <laughs> we can go into that. That's funny. No, so before harvest, you have to apply to the governing body about what you want to harvest. You can obviously change as you go during harvest, but. What they do is they then give you a piece of paper saying, okay, Mick and Janine, you have applied for Stellenbosch, Pinot Gris, Stellenbosch Cinso, Stellenbosch Syrah from these vineyards. And then within that, if there's registered single vineyards, you need to apply for a different thing. And then after harvest, sort of two months, an inspector will come and sit you down and you have to go, this is so-and-so, this is blah, blah, blah. And they'll tick it all off and say, cool, you've got that. And therefore you're allowed to label it as that. Yeah, You know, in California, I'm pretty sure they can label whoever the fuck they want. They've got great AVA systems and all that in place, but, you know, I'm pretty Relatively speaking, speaking no, no, no. It's Relatively speaking, I think it's pretty loosey-goosey. Yes, you can kind of get away with a lot there, whereas here it's very regulated in that sense. And I think it's quite a good system. I'm not the biggest fan of bureaucracy, and I think many people are, but um, I think in this sense it's, it's actually quite good. Because if you do follow the process, A, it's very easy to follow the process and B, it's easy for me to go somewhere and be honest about it and say, this is what it is. Yeah. But the, yeah, the, the other part of that system is we do have a very archaic leading onto what you're saying um, process in this country, which many people find very painful and many people don't give a shit. So basically what happens is when you submit a wine that you want to label or bottle, Pinot Gris, that's a great example. Uh, Pinot Gris, I'm pretty sure some people on this podcast have tried it. Just gets fucking drunk in Texas, basically. Um, <laughs> What's so fucking hot here, dude? Like, Exactly. Yeah. I'm not complaining. Yeah. It's awesome. So we have to submit wines to this panel of people. They taste the wine to see if first and foremost is faulty, which once again is subjective. 
but secondly, if the wine fits what it is going to be registered as. So we're getting into like the issue of typicity, right? That idea of yes, like, is this exactly. typical of what the grape or the region, whatever it is, yeah. which is like a very loaded term, right? That yeah. That's totally subjective. And it's a very narrow box for a lot of wine. Exactly. And I mean, we're not alone in this. There's a lot of, there's still a lot of regions that have this globally. I mean, basically the reason they brought it in was a very logical reason, sort of the end of apartheid when South Africa is allowed to export again and you know, there was a lot of shady crap going on. There's a lot of dodgy wine just getting filtered out to wherever. And so they brought this in to sort of try and rein it in a bit. And I fully understand back then. But the problem is, you know, we've moved on now. It's 30 years down the line. Yeah. And I like to think there's some pretty incredible wine coming out of here. So, yeah, the first the first showdown or meeting I had with these master tasters was with Apionet Gris. Because as you said, uh Stellenbosch skin fermented Pinot Gris isn't really fitting into the typical Stellenbosch or any Pinot Gris. So it's actually quite amazing because they're all really confused more than anything. And the problem when you've got these sort of, I guess, older generation people tasting, confusion leads to um, negativity. Well, uncertainty leads to fear. Yes. Fear of the unknown or the unexpected. Yeah. So we've had, I mean, we're not the only ones that have battles with these people. It's slightly getting better, but at the end of the day, it shouldn't exist. What's funny is that you have a Claret Blanche that is just labeled Claret Blanche, and then you also have the skin-fermented Claret Blanche where it says it like right there on the label, right? That actually was one of the first bottlings we did, that skin-fermented oh, really? Claret Blanche. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was 2014. We actually we didn't do that again. We just found it really confusing. <laughs> <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of consumers like, what? what? So you got a, you've got a Claret Blanche that has got some skin-ferment, and then you've got one that's all skin-ferment. So it became very confusing for people and it's like, you know what, let's just make one. Well, and it's also, I mean, the only Claret Blanche I typically see getting bottled kind of monovarietally is from South Africa. I can't imagine it's a huge market, right? So then to have like two styles of wine made from this one grape, you know, I don't know. What is it for you that you love about Claret Blanche as a grape? Um, sadly, we don't make it anymore. R.I.P. Because our vineyard pulled out. Yeah, the vineyard got, that's another long convoluted political bullshit story. Um, to be honest, we were looking for a grape to skin ferment, a white grape to skin ferment. That's kind of where it all came from. And the thing about claret is it's a very innocuous grape. It doesn't really taste like, it's like, it's like this. <laughs> um, it's like the beer it doesn't, for listeners. Yeah. 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 There's not a lot of flavor to it. So when you, it comes with a bit of acid, um, but the great thing is it sort of ripens like, 10 11%. So it's just this perfect grape that we felt you could add a bit of texture and layer and sort of nuance to it by skin fermenting. Whereas, um, you know, some of the other white grapes we have here, like Shannon, obviously we have Shannon. Um, we just found that you can overcook it a bit on the skin ferment. You kind of take away from the character that, you know, a real white grape has. Not that Claret isn't a real white grape. It was but, um, planted a lot for brandy production. Was that kind of like... Yeah, so it was, it was massively... It's a huge yielding grape. I mean, our vineyard, we used to drop fruit like nobody's business. We still used to get like 20 tons an acre. Wow. Like ridiculous amount. Mucho vino. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it was planted back in the day here where, you know, quality wasn't exactly, you know, back in the... 40s, 50s, 60s, quality exactly wasn't, you know, the top of farmers' priorities. It was about quantity. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it all went to brandy. And another reason 
strangely, Janine's dad actually told me, you know, back in the day, there used to be three varieties most people had. It was Shannon, Cinso, and Claret. They were kind of the three sort of drivers. Mm-hmm. And I asked him, like, why Claret? It's such a bizarre thing. And he's like, well, the reason is Shannon's very early. It's very early ripening grape, and Claret is very late. We used to pick our Claret after Cabernet, really? that sort of thing. It was always it was always the last grape to come in. Hmm. So he said a lot of people planted it to sort of draw out their harvest window instead of having everything at the start yeah. or the whites. So it was actually quite logistical as well. Hmm. That's wild. <laughs> South African farmers, they, they, they think they think differently as well. They think logistically. Which That's is important. Smart. I mean, you talk to a lot of farmers that source fruit from different places, and it's all about like, when can you get a harvest crew in to help pick these grapes? Logistically, how sure. do we make this happen? So, so, I mean, you were saying that you don't make that Claret Blanche anymore because the vineyard got ripped out. How do you create a demand for these vines and incentivize these farmers to like keep keep those vines in the ground. Yeah, so the um the Claret Blanche was an interesting one. So the farmer who was actually farming it, he was renting the farm, I believe. Um he also farms our Pinot Gris and our Syrahs. We're quite we're very close to him. There was actually only one other in Stellenbosch. So we thought it was literally the last block in Stellenbosch, which is kind of unique. And it was one of the driving forces about making it. It was like, you know what? Claret's got a lot of history. It's the last block in Stellenbosch. We can't let this just you know, fuck off and die. Yeah. So we started sort of regenerating it, bringing it back. And it was quite a a passion project between both of us, farmer and producer. And then the new guy that took over just obviously did not share the same idea. And, you know, it was just one of those things we weren't going to go looking for. We did, there is another Clara Blanche. We were going to consider it, but then like, you know what, the whole beautiful thing about, well, firstly, Craven, what we do and this vineyard was a relationship between you know us producers and growers because we don't own land and so you know the great it wasn't it, it became more than clara blanche it was more about the actual vineyard yeah so long story short we knew it was going to get pulled out anyway um so it did get pulled out um i think he's planted cabernet or something which is fine you know farmers got to do what a farmer's got to do but i guess to answer your question it is always a concern, um, you know, especially now that a lot of farmers are getting paid what they should. Um, but at the end of the day, farmers aren't going to pull out something that isn't profitable, I wouldn't think. And so we obviously make sure everything that we buy is more than profitable. You know, that's the only way to sort of secure these vineyards. And mm-hmm. it's we'd like to think the farmers that we work with now are thinking the same way or they tell us they do. and. You know, some of them have pulled out vineyards, but they've planted, you know, plums or lemons or something that actually makes a shitload more money, Um, which is good. You know, monocrop is not always the best thing. So it's actually great for them to sort of spread, you know, horizontally. But we don't, I would be surprised if any of our vineyards are sort of under threat, but it's always in the back of your mind. Yeah. So we just always say to our farmers, look, if you are ever considering, please come to us first. because your your vines are our livelihoods. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, but it's it is what it is. It, it's it's the big risk of our business model, I guess, if you call it that. Yeah. So you were talking earlier also about like the logistics of like grapes that ripen at different times, and at this point, you make you work with a lot of different varieties. So we work with Craven. We work with seven varieties. It's a lot. Um, Chardonnay, we started making Chardonnay. We're bougie now. <laughs> Chardonnay, 
Shannon, Pinagri, Sinso, which is incredible, great. Um, yeah, I got I got a bottle of Sinso Saran. right here. There we go. Yeah, there we go. There we go. I crushed one of them last night. Oh yeah, would you have it Jeez, with? <laughs> Nothing. Oh, just. <laughs> yeah. There we go. Just by myself. There we go. Mm. Um, yes, and we do make cab as well. Jeez, we're getting very mainline, mainstream. Got cab, um, shard. There we go. I know. Look at us. All this cougar juice. All these... This is fantastic. <laughs> That's why we're big in Texas. Cougar juice. Loving it. When you come to the yeah. U.S. and you're sharing your wines, because you're imported by Vine Street, great portfolio, shout out Meeker. I, I, I love the wines, and I'm curious for you, when you're showing them in the U.S., being with an importer that has such a depth of dynamic producers, like how, how, how do the wines fit within the book? I mean, when you're out showing these wines in the market. I guess it's very market dependent. Yeah. Um, yeah, like very market dependent. I mean, you'll go to, you know, you go to New York and it's kind of like, for me, obviously love New York, but there's a straight it's, up it's, South African wine bar in New York, isn't there? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, but it's it's tricky there. I mean, New York's New York's got everything. So you know the the Psalms and the buyers there, they see it's like a bloody revolving door. So sometimes it can be very tricky there and trying to get your point across. And mm -hmm. um, you know, I actually just love going to the middle. Like people, you know, Texas is by far one of my favorite visits. I'm not just saying that. You know, people are very receptive and they want to learn. You know, especially you know a lot of the states that I visit. You know, or well, I guess you call them the flyover states for a reason. They're just so excited that people are, are coming to visit. And, you know, that's that's what gets me excited because then you can really start sort of educating and teaching people and they're really willing to learn. And, mm. you know, this is, didn't even know you guys made, you know, this wine in South Africa. And, you know, first you get very apprehensive because it's like, what? How do you not know this shit? <laughs> but then you kind of realize, well, maybe they don't. And let's use as a great opportunity to sort of teach people. And when you do have to teach people, like, where do you start? Do you start with a KWV? Like, how far into, like, geopolitical, <laughs> like, apartheid shit do you get into? That can be really challenging sometimes contextualizing the wines. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, it's sales. I mean, I hate it and love it. You just... It's one of those things you got to immediately pick up what the vibe is, and yeah. if they've got any knowledge, if they've got no knowledge, don't even, don't bore them with, you know, stupid details. Just go broad and show them this is what South Africa is doing. Yeah. But then obviously some people like you know will ask questions, involve questions, and that's kind of cool. But I mean, back to your about Vine Street, I think it's such a, it's an amazing fit for us, you know. Um, I don't mean just us, I mean South Africans, because they kind of, you know, rewrote the book on Australian wine in the US. They've built up such a big customer base sort of nationally of people who are willing to try off the chart sort of Australian stuff. And I think those types of people are probably also open to trying something random from South Africa. It's kind of, it'll be tricky if you're getting imported by a burgundy focused producer or like a french focused producer because their clientele is very different mm -hmm. you know they're not necessarily looking for a fucking skin fermented pinagree from Stellenbosch. so it's been a, it's been an amazing journey actually so far with with vine stream it's only been four years or five years and it actually all started with our mutual friend natalie i believe oh shout out um, natalie what a rock star she's great yeah so that um i'm i emailed her like 
I met her back in 2012 here, strangely. Really? Yeah, she was out here on a little, she was working for Terroir. Oh, and she was right, out here on right. a little, yeah. out on a junket. And I was working a motorbosh. So I was part of the whole, anyway, that's a whole other podcast. But then for some reason, I reached out to her and just, you know, we were, we were in the infancy of what we're doing. We were obviously looking outside of, out of South Africa, where to sell wine. And I just emailed Natalie and said, look, we'd love to get our wine into the US. I know the system's a complete fuck show with <laughs> three tiers and distributors and all that. Like, how would you go on about like doing your own thing, like distributing yourself? And I think she probably quietly laughed at me. because <laughs> um, she's like, I'm going to put you on a guy called Aaron Mika at Vine Street, you know, just have a chat to him and see what he can do. Hell yeah. And I'd obviously known Vine Street for a while because of all the mm. Aussies, you know, a lot of a lot of the people they import are mates from home. So I'd known of them and I think I'd heard of Mika, but then I just got chatting to him and it was yeah. very coincidental that he's like, it's very funny you contact me because, you know, we're super keen on branching down in South Africa potentially. Um so it's actually kind of a, you know, a sliding doors kind of vibe where I was like, well, not even sliding doors, but you know what I mean? It was, and Mika's like, awesome, let's get chatting. And then, so we started obviously talking about Craven and then um, Mika being Mika's like, cool, let's put together a sort of mini portfolio. Hell yeah. He's like, you need to, you need to help me find some guys that are willing. And I think there was four or five of us to start with and it sort of snowballed from there. And I think... You know, they're doing an incredible job for all of us and sort of broadcasting South African wine, which is great. For so many people, South African wine can feel like a monolithic category. And I think the fact that Vine Street has so many producers from different areas within South Africa and the fact that they just have a passionate team behind it as well that's knowledgeable goes such a long way. Have they ever done like a portfolio show of sorts where you and like a handful of other winemakers have come to the U.S. at the same time? Like, has there been any opportunity to do something like that? Yeah, so last year, last year, like that didn't exist. Last year didn't um, happen. That was just. <laughs> the year before last, was it 2019? I think we yeah. all went. So they did a, they had a 30, I want to say a 30 year anniversary. So they invited, well, a lot of us were over in the trade anyway. We scheduled trips around it, but we all had a massive blowout and big sort of portfolio thing in Philly. I think most of us from South Africa went, all of us from South Africa went. So it's probably eight or 10 of us at that stage. And then obviously a bunch from Australia. And it's actually, it was a really cool event. Firstly, because I got to see some mates that I haven't seen for a while from Australia. Um, but just try their wines as well. I mean, we don't really get Aussie wine here. Mm -hmm. It was just cool to sort of catch up with people. And, and what was exciting was seeing, obviously they invite a lot of trade and press up that side and, you know, the South Africa tables are packed. Like people were really excited and tasting and, you know, just general sort of not shock, but surprise that like, wow, these wines are actually really good. You know, the thing is, I think it's such, it's like the infancy of South Africa wine in the US. I mean, I know there's been some seriously established brands over there for a long time who have sort of paved the way. But I think in terms of producers like us, it's it's very, it's very, new for a lot of people which is exciting i mean a lot of people and the biggest problem is a lot of smaller guys just don't even think about the u.s because of you know all the crazy systems and they just like instead send the wine to england to europe is that kind of the main market yeah so the you know obviously the uk has got such a long history of yeah. south africa there's there's already that built-in knowledge in the uk i mean when i travel to london you don't even you don't you'll say to someone um 
yeah, this is our wine from Stellenbosch. And they kind of look at you and they're like, yeah, but where in Stellenbosch? Like what region mm-hmm. is Stellenbosch? Um, so obviously the level of education or knowledge there is much bigger. Um, so yeah, most of the wine ends up there or in Europe. So a lot of the smaller guys just don't even really have wine to ship to the US. Um, hmm. But for us, Janine and I, we made a, I guess, a concerted effort to make US our focus. So, I mean, that's, you know, when I contacted Mika from Vine Street in 2014, I think we'd made, I think we only made 7,000 bottles of wine that year, like nothing. But we just thought, you know what, we want, we love the US. We've spent a lot of time there. We love the people. It's a great opportunity. Let's, let's focus over there. Um, and I hope it's working because I like visiting when we're allowed to visit. Fucking hell. Any, any trips planned for the second half of 2021, or do you think it's going to be 2022 before you get on a plane to sell wine in the UK, Europe, or the U S well, it's not really up to me. Is it? I would leave on a plane tomorrow if I was allowed to. Yeah. No, you're, we stupidly discovered some variant that the world seems to be very terrified of. Oh, right. This yeah. COVID thingy. Yeah. You guys, um, yeah. yeah, so we're, we're pretty much on no flight, no flight schedules for the next foreseeable future, oh, man. which is crazy. Um, but no, I'm, this is probably the longest stretch of time, right? That you've been grounded. Yeah. Last year was the first year I hadn't left the country and, or left a country in 20 years, I think. Wow. I'm, I'm itching to get on a trip again now, just more so to get out and share wine with people. But it was actually awesome to be home, especially now, with, you know, a couple of young kids, it was just, you know, if you're traveling six, seven, eight weeks a year, it does sort of, it does add up, but it was awesome to be around and see the little ones even more. And so it was, it was good, but I think we've all had enough of it now, right? It's time to like, yeah. it's time to move on, please. Time to move yeah. on. Yeah, Sounds like no, Texas sure. is. Sounds like Texas is just like. Dude, we're, we're open for business, baby. <laughs> this is a super spreader event. This is, this is pretty wild. I actually got my first Fauci ouchie. I got my first vaccine shot. I got my Moderna shot and I'm due for my second shot in a couple of weeks. It's insane. So it, it's truly, it's truly bonkers. It's a twisted situation for sure that restaurants are just like trying to fight with guests, you know, or they, they are fighting with guests about this situation because the governor was lifted the mask mandate. Like it's truly bananas. It's, <laughs> it's wild for sure. This is also like our patio season though, right? So yeah. like people are very eager to do events outside oh. between the months of like December and April in Houston, just because like after April, once you're in May, it's going to be hot as shit until October. Yeah. So I can't wait to get back. I'm dying to get back. Yeah, we got to get you out. I'm dying to get back. Okay, so if you were to compare Texas barbecue, grilled meat in the U.S. with Bry, well, how would how would you kind of go about that? Because you're a man that's eaten many a piece <laughs> of meat in your day. I do. I've actually got um. I've got a fire going in the pizza oven to put something in there later as well. Oh, yeah? Well, I think Texas or barbecue in general is like a different beast, right? I mean, that's smoked and delicious. Eat the shit out of that. Oh, I love barbecue. Now you, now you want to- Are you more of a brisket guy, pulled pork? Like. It depends where you are, right? You one of those weird fuckers that likes the smoked turkey best? I don't know. <laughs> don't put turkey near me. It's just a waste of time. Um, <laughs> it's not even meat. I don't know. It depends where you are, it depends what's good. I do like brisket down in Texas. Um, but yeah, I guess brying is brying similar to grilling, but grilling is very propane-y though, isn't it? And charcoal. 
in the U.S. Depends on just depends on the spot, right? Yeah. Like some people grill on charcoal, some people do gas. Now we're all about wood. It's got to be cooked on wood. Yeah. Sometimes some charcoal, but like that's the best. Brying's the best. We brought like pretty every yeah. every other night these days, especially in this weather. It's oh really? Just nice. Yeah, you light a fire. It takes like two hours. You drink wine and. Crack open a cold one, yeah. drink a beer while you wait. Yeah, I mean, it's more social than anything. A lot of the brides you end up at, you're just too drunk to even taste the food. It's generally, the food's shit anyway because it's been cooked forever. <laughs> <laughs> That's a bad people's brides. Brides are amazing. They're, um, it's a very inherent, like a very important part of social fabric here. You know, it could be like 100 degrees gale force winds outside you know high fire season and people still bry it's ridiculous bry till you die baby no but I'm, I'm ready to come back for some barbecue that's for sure anything else you want to let listeners know i don't really know i mean just to reiterate what i was saying before i just think south africa is such an exciting place in terms of well many things but one particularly and i think if you're sitting on the fence at all just you know go out there and buy some bottles you know, there's plenty of knowledgeable people all over the US, particularly in Texas, and just ask them about what's cool from South Africa. And I think you'll be pleasantly surprised. You know, there's just an array of different things. You might get stung if you choose Pinotage, but that's your own fault. But anything else- There's some good Pinotages coming out. I had a conversation are, with are. Jürgen the other day, and he said that that's where he thinks, like, you know, picking it a little less ripe, cooler climate sites, like there's some cool shit happening. No, there is. I'm just being a dickhead. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But you don't think there's a Pinotage in your future? There's not a Craven Pinotage down the road? We have made some, um, but it just didn't. We've tried. Put it this way, we've tried. What's the the definition of insanity? If If you keep doing the same thing and get the same result, you just give up. And do it again, expecting something different. That's yeah. the one. That's the one. No, that's sure. the one. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, we're steering clear. We've we've definitely burnt our hands. <laughs> burnt our hands in the pinotage pot far too many times. Well, look out for me when I come back. We'll come and drink and get ready. Hell yeah. Yeah. It's gonna be wild. Yeah. I'm gonna drink a Pedialyte in advance of your visit, just like to get <laughs> myself ready. And that what's that water you guys have? That epic like salty water. I, there's Topo Chico. Is that what that's you're thinking? That's the one. Of? That's the one. Yeah. Oh, I love that shit. Yeah, the sparkling water. Proper hangover. That's so cure. good. Yeah. I'll have it ready for you when you come to town. <laughs> well, enjoy your time at the beach. I imagine you're going to go straight there after this. I probably will, yeah. Why not? Why yeah, not? there we go. Sun's still up. Hell yeah. Yeah. Awesome, man. I love it. Nick, thank you so much. Thank you, legend. Cheers, bro. Thanks, everyone. And that is our show. Thank you for listening to another episode of By the Glass. You can stream every episode ever on Spotify, Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you stream your audio content. So go back and listen to some of those early episodes. The audio quality is probably not as good. I've definitely gotten a little bit better with the editing, but uh, we've got some winner guests over the past year. So uh, definitely go through and listen to those. They're, they're, They're all winners. They are all truly fantastic, magical episodes and would love your thoughts. Uh, drop me a line at Brace Thoughts on Instagram, or you can follow the podcast itself at By the Glass Podcast on Instagram. So, yeah, looking forward to it, guys. Thanks so much, and looking forward to another year of potting with y'all. Talk soon. Bye.